3CR Breakfast acknowledges that we are broadcasting from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to any Indigenous listeners who are tuning into the program this morning. This land was always was and always will be Aboriginal land and sovereignty was never ceded. CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're on 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. Or maybe you're listening in online at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming, in which case, well done, you're a tech wizard. I'm Jacob, and I'm joined by my lovely co-hosts, Claudia. How are you doing this morning? Very well. Thank you, Jason. Jacob. It's lovely to have you on the panel this morning, hosting for us. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's great to be here after my little hiatus to Tasmania. And Ella, what about you? How are you doing this morning? Good morning. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Very excited. Um, yeah, you're returning from your holiday. I'm about to go on mine today. So the energy's oh. good, I think, this morning in the studio. <laughs> well, we're all taking off on vacations, which I love. Where are you going? Uh, up to Brisbane to see my family. So it's my dad's 60th. He's got a big party planned. I hear there's uh, 70 people who have RSVP'd yes, and he's uh, booked a local act he saw at the market. So it's uh, set to be a good night. <laughs> Oh, excellent. (laughs) Scouting talent wherever he sees it. (laughs) Yeah, what a fun night. I have not actually ventured up to Brisbane. Are you missing out? (laughs) Yeah, in my life. So what's what's the go in Brisbane if I was to go? Where's the highlight? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, for me, I go back to Brisbane to see friends and family. Um, and I think it's like a really good base point to explore some other areas. So really close to the Sunshine Coast. Um, and you've also got all this beautiful nature pretty much in every direction. Um, you've got Gold Coast hinterlands, which are beautiful. Uh, mountains all around. Um, and yeah, as the city itself, I'd say Brisbane's pretty sleepy it's a big like kind of family city um lots of young working professionals <laughs> sounds lush sounds divine but uh yeah it's not bad but i uh, you need a car you don't get around too far in public mm. transport and riding a bike scary so. <laughs> <laughs> i guess if you asked your dad it'd be the local markets would be the highlight yes all the local <laughs> markets if you go to my parents place they give a good tour to uh, anyone who visits my mum has a real schedule she lays out every time you get taken down to um South Bank Beach, which is a man-made beach. You go to Mount Cutha, which is a lookout point. So, yeah, my mum's probably the best person to ask. There you go, Jacob. We'll be putting Ella's mum's address in the show notes if anyone yeah. wants to drop by. A direct phone number. <laughs> Not sponsored by Queensland Tourism. But, uh, <laughs> and how was Tasmania, Jacob? Oh, it was it was amazing, actually. I've only been once um, for work, and that was only to run a program for a day, so I hadn't actually experienced the wonders of Hobart. But the thing that really stood out to me was how fresh the air was. Like, I was in Flinders Good Station. <laughs> yeah, right? I was in Flinders Station the other day, and there was, like, an ad for Tasmania that said something about going down for air. And I just thought, that is so right, because the air you breathe... There's something in it. Like, it's, mm. it's different. It's straight from Antarctica. Um, so, yeah, would highly recommend. There's also some beautiful mountains 
and a lot of bushland there, um, which I was lucky enough to go visit. And we also went to to the Museum of Old and New Art, which um, Mona, which many people know about. So yeah. What did you think? Did you enjoy Mona? Or? It was yeah, it was amazing. I will say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure what to expect, um, but there was three stories of art all built into the bedrock of this grand hill and the whole time I just couldn't stop thinking about how much time and and resources would have been put into making this Um, and the fact that it's free if you're a local Tasmanian as well is so cool and that seemed to be a trend actually most of the attractions that we went to were free for Tasmanians so I feel like you know maybe I should flee Melbourne and become a Tasmanian. There's so many perks. Yeah, get those discounts. <laughs> yeah, and that air, like, I will not stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're breathing more lightly. Yes, yes, I sure am. So we've got a fantastic show coming up for you over the next hour and a half. At 10 past 7, which is in about five minutes, um, we'll be playing a little interview that I conducted with two drag performers called Foxy Foe and Timberlina. And they're mm-hmm. from my, my humble hometown uh, of Newcastle. And we had a bit of a chat about their journeys into drag and also the joy of bringing drag to regional areas. Because as you may know, um, it's, it's conventionally been something you can only access in the city. So that was a really interesting discussion we had yesterday. And then at, 7.30, Claudia's got a really interesting interview as well, sticking to the theme of LGBT+. Yes, I'll be interviewing Professor Tom Bellstorff. He's uh, from the Anthropology Department of University of California, and he'll be talking about the role of language in gender inclusion. Um, his specialty is looking at the English language and the structural barriers to the inclusion of trans non-binary and queer people and he'll be telling us what could be changed to reflect the values of inclusivity in our society. Oh, so, that'll be good. Yeah, really interesting. And um, University of California, are you making international calls from the 3CR phone, Claudia? I am. <laughs> All pre-arranged. That's, that's very Excellent. bold of you. Nice to have a guest from afar. <laughs> 3CR's gone international today. Woohoo. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I can't wait to hear as they, as they them. I'm very interested to see what they mm, have to say. Some interesting points. Absolutely. Excellent. Um, and then at 7.50, Ella's bringing us a bit of a local arts scoop. Yeah, that's right, a little closer to home at our favourite La Mama Theatre. Um, and I'm going to be speaking with playwright Angela Buckingham about her latest production, Hashtag No Exemptions. Um, so this one is set in a dystopian future where the global environmental collapse has triggered a crisis. Um, and this story follows a character called Maria as she attempts to see her son one last time. Um, so the play deals with issues such as privilege and inequality, uh, looks at motherhood and our responsibilities as citizens to resist unjust systems. Um, so it sounds like a meaty one. I think there's a bit of humour in the play as well, so hopefully not too heavy for uh, 7.50 in the morning. My um, God. And yeah, I'm excited to hear more from Angela. Yeah, wow. I, I love how we're transitioning from pronouns to ecological collapse. It, it feels right. <laughs> you know? big stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, I, I can't wait to hear. La Mama always seem to be putting on really uh, thoughtful and amazing pieces of work, so that should be a really interesting one. 
And at eight past ten, sorry, ten past eight, <laughs> <laughs> we're not on until then. <laughs> Promise. Three uh, hours. <laughs> yeah, Ooh, let's go. <laughs> uh, Claudia is going to be speaking to someone about an event um, run by Workers for Climate Action and Friends of the Earth. That's right. That's uh, happening tonight um, at the Catherine Syme Library in Carlton. And Workers for Climate Action, Friends of the Earth, and uh, Act on Climate. Uh, those three groups are holding a community forum to demand uh, attention to public renewable energy in the election lead-up. So there's going to be four speakers at the forum, including Green Senator Lydia Thorpe, um, a speaker from uh, the Loy Yangle Power Station, a Tomorrow Movement activist and an MUA um, speaker as well. So, yeah, that, that'll be a, a really... Um, powerful meeting I imagine but we'll be hearing more about that when I speak to the organiser Jason Wong at 10 past 8. Fantastic I'm a very big fan of public renewable energy so I think that's a really uh, worthwhile event to head along to. Well you're on 3CR Breakfast and we'll be right back after this. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian Government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. You're on 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob, Ella and Claudia. Now, I'm a Melbourneian by coffee order, but Newcastle holds a special place in my heart. I was brought up in the regional city, which is situated about two hours' drive north of Sydney in New South Wales. And something that excites me about going back to visit is the emergence of a local drag scene, with drag bingos, trivia and performance nights popping up around town. And there's one queen that I will never miss every time I head back. Her name is Timberlina, and I spoke with her and drag performer Foxy Foe about the Newcastle drag scene and the importance of bringing queer spaces to regional areas. So we are joined by the wonderful Timberlina and Foxy Foe coming to you from Newcastle. Welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on. 
So let's start off. How did you both get into drag and what inspired you to start? And let's start with Tim and then I'll ask Foxy to also answer that question. Okay, so I, how did I start in drag? It was by accident. I was visiting my sister in the US, um, and we were in a drag bar and I got pulled up on stage and it was a dance off moment and obviously I'm so competitive I had to win. So I just pulled out the splits and by that, like when I say the splits, like my splits weren't as good as I can do the splits now. They were like still really bad. Um, and people started throwing money at me and I was like, I can make money from doing this. This is sick. And then came back to Australia and, I literally got really drunk at my parents' property and started emailing some bars in Newcastle saying, hey, can I start drag bingo? And then a month later, I was literally in a venue in Newcastle doing drag bingo to 90 people. And I guess the rest is history now. Like, it's been a wild wind of, like, four and a half years. And, Foxy, what about you? What started your drag journey? Uh, not quite as exciting as Tim's, but um, like a lot of people, I think these days, I started watching uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, and um, through that, I started going to uh, live shows, like live drag shows. It wasn't until I actually went to a live drag show down in Melbourne, and I met my first, I guess you could say, AFAB or bio queen, and was like, oh my god, like, girls can do this like I knew about it in America I didn't know about it in Australia um and then kind of came home started practicing I said to Tim like because at that point they had um created a like a baby drag like a first time first time is kind of show and I was like yep I'm gonna do it and that was it once I got in I wasn't allowed to pull out and I just pretty much haven't stopped ever since and yeah just keep going and every time every opportunity I've just continued to say yes 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 and here we are so we've got a couple of seasoned uh, drag performers in our presence by the sounds of it. And as a former Novacaster in myself, I know that there wasn't really much of an LGBTQIA plus scene back when I was there. I mean, we had one gay club and it kind of closed down and then there was a few sort of events happening. But what was the queer scene like in Newcastle when both of you started out? Was there much of a drag scene there? No, there wasn't. So the G, um, which is now the Newey Hotel here, was the queer space. And I think six months into my career of doing drag, it closed down. So there was literally no queer bar in Newcastle. Um, and that's when I decided to start a show called Blush, um, which was our baby queen show or baby drag show. Um, giving people the platform to get on stage and perform in drag and give that safe space. And we moved around with that, and I guess that really kicked off what we see now in Newcastle. So it's it's good to see Newcastle over the years grow, but there was literally nothing when I started. Um, people talk about drag mums and dads, and I say I'm the drunk auntie, now sober auntie. <laughs> um, so I don't have a drag mum or anything like that. So I guess that sums it up pretty good how it was here like it wasn't there was nothing when I started Mm. I only had a space because Tim created a space for me to be able to you know do drag like that was the whole reason that I found my local community of drag is because of the spaces that Tim created for us amazing I love this image of Timberlina as the drunk slash now newly sober auntie of Newcastle's drag scene I love it yeah And so it started out just as blush, 
and then I'm guessing did Timber Productions come next or was that kind of before? So Timber Productions came about because of Blush. Um, I wanted to separate it from my own brand as Timberlina. Um, I needed to have a production company that then could produce other events and other shows and then take on that talent agency, um, which it's grown into now and just build a brand that wasn't just Timberlina because Timberlina was like then at that stage growing, I was growing my own brand and it was getting really big out West and still is heavily, massively big out West. Um, and that's my biggest thing about my brand is that it's, we aren't all about like the city and all that kind of stuff. It's all about regional and reaching regional people. Um, and then so Blush happened and then Timber Productions came along and I could fit everything else underneath that that wasn't Timberlina, which has been a massive couple of years. I'm not going to lie. It's been really big. So the next event I think that came along would have been Timberlina's Drag Off, which is a massive drag comp here at that stage. And, and um, uh, there was another night. Queetopia? Yeah, Queetopia. That's it. Queetopia, which was like a kind of you got smaller paid. version. Yeah, like it was not just like that. It was a step up from the baby drag show. It was We got other performers to come in and so, yeah, it's been pretty exciting, to be honest, to be able to have Newcastle accept it, I guess, as well. Mm, absolutely. And what have been some of the highlights for you, Foxy, as a member of the talent agency? Um, I mean, I started off with a bang, winning Timberlina's first drag-off to be able to get into Timber, Timber Productions, because at that stage that was like, Part of the prize is that you then got to um, kind of do that. And then through that, I have learnt how to host and co-host and build confidence in myself. Like talking on a microphone used to be one of the scariest things. Uh, like school, like speeches, I hated it. I never did anything like that. Now, and Tim can vouch this, I don't shut up. Um, I, it's just like I can't stop now. I love it so much. Like I'm so uh, I'm confident enough, like, I could walk into a room and someone said, I need you to host and there's 20 people here and entertain them, go. And I'd be like, no worries, I can do that. Where that would have been so scary previously. So I think just getting the opportunity to be able to go out and entertain people to show what I can do to prove that, you know, drag for me is something that I want to do and further in my life. It's not just like a, you know, get up on stage, perform, and that's all I'm good for. No, I really want to host. I want to, like, do more with it, not just be a little dancing queen on the stage at a club. Yeah, absolutely. Those people, that's great if that's what you want to do. But I, I want all the opportunities and I'm working my way towards it. She's a well-rounded performer is what I'm hearing from from that sentiment. And it, it sounds like it's had quite a profound effect on you, not only professionally, but also personally as well. And I'm curious, what has the effect been on the community in Newcastle? Have you noticed any shifts in attitude towards the queer and trans community? For me to answer that question, yeah, 100%. If you went back five years ago now to see a drag performer in, as we like to call them, a straight bar, you would never see that in a city like Newcastle. And I guess for me, one of my biggest things is to break down that barrier to create equality, is to go into queer, well, not queer spaces, but straight spaces, that hetero space, and turn them queer for a night. Um, To put us in front of those audiences that will never go to a queer bar, why should 
why shouldn't we just put ourselves in front of them? And that's my biggest thing is that, like, if I can educate people in the way that I do my shows, it that's the best way to it. Go straight to them. Go to the straight to the people. And I love that it's saying straight. <laughs> um, straight to those people that need to be educated um, and educate them in a way that, um, one, I do it in a comedic way with my shows. So it's like they don't realize they're getting educated, but they are. Um, and then they start to ask those questions and then I can say that I can go into any, any conversation with an open heart, open book and I will talk to people. Like, for example, yesterday I was at a bar and these straight guys were just asking all these questions. They're like, you're so cool. Like, because I was so open and just vulnerable with them. I think that's what we need to be is like, and now they will understand when they're meeting other queer people or trans people, they'll actually have kind of that education behind what they should be saying. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Like, and the pe- people in Newcastle, like, you can always see us, like, at, on a weekly basis, there's someone walking around Newcastle these days, like, which is an incredible thing to have. So even if it's just seeing someone seeing us walking down the street going, oh, I wonder where they're going, and then they start to look it up or something like that. We find that we're having br- uh, brand new people and brand new audiences all the time that want to come and want to support and want to learn more about it. Um, and they're just like people I think these days are getting just more and more open-minded. Like I, like we both host bingo in a shopping center food area at 6 PM on a Wednesday and there's children and all sorts of people coming and walking past and most people just stand there, watch, have a laugh and stay or keep walking if it's not quite their thing. And it's, it's just something new, something different, bringing drag into the suburbs instead of always being in the city as well and more accessible for all those people that can't always make it into town, even though, like, Newcastle is still really small. People who live 20, 40 minutes away from the city don't want to travel all that way just for a queer safe space where now we're bringing it to those areas that are that little bit further out. Yeah, I love this idea of decentralizing drag and that it doesn't always have to be in those small hubs within the city. And I think, Tim, you touched on before going to regional towns such as out west. I know you've got quite a presence in Dubbo, for example. How important do you think visibility and community is for LGBTQIA plus people in those regional areas? Um, I just got goosebumps because I'm so passionate about this. Um, so I'm from a regional town. Um, I grew up in a small country town called Golgong in the central west of New South Wales. And for me growing up out there, there was nothing. You didn't see anything. Um, for example, I had to fight to play netball out there. That was my sport. That's what I wanted to do. Um, my neighbor taught me how to dance. Like it was very small. Um, so for me, when I started drag, it was like, a no-brainer that I had to take it to regional New South Wales. For me, I find a lot of people just stop um, once they hit to the Great Dividing Range and they won't go past that because they're scared of what people are going to think of them. I can tell you country folk love it the most. For me, if I'm walking down the street now in, say, Mudgee, people will either come up and run up and ask for a photo or they'll swap to the other side of the road. And for me, that's a win because I made an effect on that town and they either love it or they hate it. But at the end of the day, they're going to have to love it because I'm not going anywhere. And for me, if a kid sees me on a poster and questions their parents about what that is, who it is, hopefully their parents will be smart enough to educate their children. If not, the kids are going to see me on the street anyway. It doesn't really matter. But it's so important because there could be somebody that's 
25 and still working out who they are. Um, and they might come to a show and then they can come and have that conversation with me. It, it creates that safe space. There's other queer people that come to these shows. So I guess for me, it's another way to educate people as well because the country folk is still out there and they want to learn as well. And I have so many middle-aged white women coming and asking questions. So, <laughs> um, it's a great way to educate people as well. And it fills my heart. Like this weekend, 90% of my shows are in the central west of New South Wales. So it's kind of cool. And I'm spread out everywhere. Like I go to Tamworth and then I'm in Mudgee and then I'm in Dubbo and then I'm in Orange. So it's kind of like I'm hitting all the places out west. It's really fun. Sensational. I love this image of you on a country road, just, you know, approached by middle-aged white women. That really warms my heart. <laughs> yeah. It's and, actually so fun. I love it. And Foxy, same question for you. How important do you think visibility and community is for queer people living in regional areas and regional cities, including Newcastle? Well, I mean, I've been really lucky to be able to go a couple of times out to like Dubbo and other places where Tim does bring safe spaces for people. I think it's important because queer people shouldn't have to feel that to be accepted and to be themselves, they have to move to a capital city. You know, the cost of living out there is like queer people don't always have the best of uh, like job availabilities or incomes and things like that. Like it's hard for those people to be like living in such expensive areas like and they might want to stay where they are. Like they've got good friends. They've got good family. There's other ish, like reasons of why they want to stay or need to stay where they are. There's no reason why they can't have somewhere to go or have an event to be themselves or like Tim said if there's someone that's still figuring out who they are like everyone shouldn't have to travel to a capital city just to get that thing to fill that need that's inside of you of like seeing people like you it's sh- they shouldn't have to travel so far just to do that I mean we're lucky because of like social media and like tv like there's all sorts of things but being up close in the flesh with someone else that understands what you're going through or even if you want to forget that for a night and just be in company with like people that are an ally or supportive or something like there's just a comforting feeling about having that come to you rather than you have to chase it. Mm, It's so special. I think having, as you said, people not in cities going out and creating those spaces because you are totally right. You shouldn't have to come and live in an expensive city to find uh, a sense of comfort yeah, and identity like so, in yourself. So it sucks. Like so many um, things for like trans people, like medications, all sorts of other things are like so hard to like access. They're also really expensive because they're not always covered by Medicare as well. Like throw that into living in some of the most expensive places in the world. Like Australia is like, Sydney and all that is like ridiculous like and they don't might not want to do that they're still country folk at heart like still want to live in that regional area they don't all have to like want to yeah live in the city and live in the hustle and bustle but like they shouldn't yeah have to chase those safe spaces and safe people as well absolutely what are you most excited about timber productions in the future and let's start with tim Oh, I really want to grow the business. I want to take it to more regional and remote locations um, around Australia um, that starve for that community feel and creating safe spaces around Australia in regional places, not just the city. I feel like the cities are 
a bit saturated at the moment and we need to spread our wings a little bit more and take it everywhere else and that's what Timber Productions is for. Love it. And Foxy, what are you most excited about? I'm excited to be a part of the journey. Like, I'm excited to see different places. Like, I'd only ever been where concrete was. I didn't know red dirt for, like, the life of me. And now uh, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to be there. So, um, it's yeah, get my little city, city heart. Like, I've lived in apartments since I was, like, eight. I don't remember, like, gardens and all that kind of stuff. And here I am going out into the country. So I'm just happy to be along for the ride. Foxy's in the passenger seat, choosing the playlist, and Tim's driving. I think this is the image that I'm getting. That is (laughs) correct. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tim, Foxy, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, and best of luck with all of your shows coming up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You're on 3CR Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. on the dial, and that was a conversation with drag performers Timberlina and Foxy Foe reflecting on their journeys into drag and its importance in creating safe spaces for queer and trans people in regional areas. We'll be right back after this community service announcement. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Good morning. You're on 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob and Claudia. Thanks, Jacob, and uh, that was a, a great segue into our next segment, hearing from uh, your interviewee, bringing uh, trans performers to regional Australia. Um, and I'd like to start um, this next segment by um, talking about how I came about the author of the article, who I'll be speaking to, um, because as listeners know, the exclusion of trans women in Australia's sport has um, been raging among certain conservative factions, and it's causing a lot of um, well disgust amongst egalitarian camps, and also a lot of uncertainty for those who identify outside and or between the male-female gender binary. And I was um, thinking about this and the extent to which placing people in categories um, based on the male-female binary are so entrenched in our society and can act as barriers to inclusion for um, the trans, non-binary and queer uh, communities. So I, I read this article by our next guest, Tom Belstorff, about the way in which the English language itself 
sets up structural binaries and barriers. And it felt like an important dimension uh, to share with our listeners. So uh, Professor Tom Bellstorff is a cultural and linguistic anthropologist and a professor in the anthropology department at the University of California. They have authored a number of articles and books about queer anthropology and the role language plays in gender inclusion. And in the recently published article, Why English Might Let Go of He and She, Tom argues that the English language is structurally flawed when it comes to gender inclusivity and the time has come to change it. Tom joins us now from California. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for joining us, Tom. This is Jacob from 3CR here. Do you want to start by telling us a bit about what inspired you to write this article about dismantling he and she pronouns? Sure. Well, I, um, I've been a linguist my whole career since I was in college, in addition to being an anthropologist. And so I've always been interested in the relationship between language and sexuality and my my original research was in Indonesia, working with LGBT Indonesians. And um, as some of you might know, Indonesia, your next door neighbors, um, all Indonesian languages don't have separate words for he and she, right? They just have one word, like dia um, in Bahasa So early on, I sort of, you know, got to think about the role of uh, pronouns in inclusion for trans and, and queer folks from having been going to Indonesia since 1992. And... In the last 10 years, we've had a really interesting debate, right, about how to make English more inclusive with regard to gender. And so that's sort of the, the way I, I first got interested in this. And it's a, it's a really important conversation to have, for sure. Thanks for that. And uh, I just uh, had a problem hearing you, so I can hear you perfectly well now. Thanks, um, Tom, and thanks for Great. Jacob stepping in there. So can you tell us what the structural flaws that you see in the English language are and, and how they um, impact gender inclusion? Sure. Well, for me as a linguist, one of the most important things is always to take a comparative view, to not just look at ourselves, right? But to look around the world, to, to get information from languages around the world. And so when you do that, you realise that um, over one billion people around the world every day speak languages that do not have he or she, right? That includes everything from Indonesian and spoken Chinese to Korean, Finnish, Turkish, Persian, you know, hundreds of languages do not have he or she. So you can't misgender people in those languages, right? They're, they're often called epicenes, one, one word for those languages. And so, you know, that is really a helpful thing to understand is that um, having gender is not gendered pronouns is not required in all languages, right? All languages have a way to say I or you. All languages have first or second person. There's no way around that. But having gender in gender pronouns in language is not obligatory. It's not required. Hundreds of languages don't have it. So that is sort of the first piece of, of information. And that's a second piece of information that's interesting to me is, you know, to the degree we want to consider that a flaw, which I do, um, because it is exclusive. We're very lucky in a sense in the English language because English almost doesn't have gender already. We only mark gender pronouns 
in the third person singular and possessive, right? We don't mark it for I, we don't mark it for you. And there are languages that do, right? And many of, of your listeners may know languages like, you know, Spanish or French or Italian that also mark gender and adjectives or elsewhere, right? Russian even marks it in the verb. So um, we are lucky that we don't have to change as much, right? Because it's only a, a few pronouns. And a third thing that makes us even luckier is that we actually already have a solution out there, which is singular they, which has been used since the time of Shakespeare, right? In one of Shakespeare's plays, he says, there's not a man I meet that doth salute me as if I were their well-acquainted friend. We've had it for hundreds of years. We use it all the time. You know, someone just left the room and uh, they left their sweater, right? People say that all the time. So despite the efforts of some um, linguistic police to ban that singular day, it's been around for hundreds of years. So we are um, fortunate in a sense that ancient English, trans-inclusive, non-binary inclusive, is actually easier than it is for many other languages out there for both of those reasons. We only have it in a couple of the pronouns. And we have an alternative that people actually use all the time. Well, that's a really interesting um, way to ex- explain it, and um, thank you for enlightening us, enlightening us about the way uh, language is constructed in, in other places. Um, yeah, it's really, really helpful. So I guess what you're saying is English sort of sits in the middle of the language spectrum when it comes to gender um, Words um, and where we're, we're almost at the point where we could move past those those few words that do dictate gender, but I'm wondering about other other words that we have, particularly in family relationships. Um, you know, everything from grandma and grandpa to son and daughter, sister and brother. You know, where where would you draw the line in terms of changes to bring more neutrality and and uh, inclusivity in terms of uh, the language. So, yeah, the, so in, in the article that you said, and what I, I did for this part, I was really focusing on pronouns. There are a few other places in language where those kinds of things show up. And in, in many cases, they are not obligatory. And for me, one of the most important things in terms of immediate activism is to go after the things that are obligatory. So as an example, in, in German or French or Spanish or many languages, there's a way to say formal or informal, like who and do in French or you or he in German. If you speak those languages, everyone you know, you have already decided they are higher status than you or people. If I speak German, Everyone who I talk to, I already call them Z or I call them you. If I don't know them very well, I probably default to Z, right, to the formal thing. Now, English does not have that as an obligatory part of the language. Now, we can do it. We can say the honorable Joseph whoever, or we can, right, we can use words to show respect, but it is not required at the level of pronouns. We aren't forced to do it. And the issue with he and she is that it forces us to do it. So the issue of gender in language more generally, it is a really important issue. But for the moment here, what I'm really talking about is a focused argument about pronouns and cases where you are forced to gender people in the language. And there are amazing linguistic activists in Argentina doing stuff with Spanish, in Italy doing stuff with Italian, and like you just mentioned, wow. 
they have a lot bigger job because it's in the pronoun, uh, it's in the adjective, it's showing up all over the place in those languages. And, and so in English, it is an, an easier thing to do. It doesn't mean that gender is going to disappear from what I'm talking about here. But it, the key thing is that it's not making it obligatory. And there are a number of people who, myself included, who find it difficult to remember um, to use the correct pronouns, even though I'm fully accepting of the person's chosen um, gender identity. And I know this is a, a counter-argument that is heard all the time, um, particularly among cisgendered um, people, that it's too much effort or it's too hard to remember pronouns. Um, what's the, the view on that? Um, is that something that will come with practice? I mean, I can remember, I'm showing my age now, but I can remember a time when it, it, it took me a little bit of time to remember to refer to someone's partner as their partner, and I would always um, sort of go to, say, husband or wife. Um, if Whether the, partner, the partners were... Um, gay or straight but may not be married or whatever whereas these days everyone is a partner because we've we've come to that um point of um social acceptance but also um so many people aren't married and so forth so social um behaviors change and that helps us make the changes that we need to um make with our language use so i'm wondering whether the pronouns um are a little bit like this and our um, awareness, particularly among cisgendered um, people, will increase and social acceptance will also um, build that um, competency in that area. Right. So one thing that I talk about in the article you read and a longer version of this that will be published later this year is Another solution that people have been doing in the last 10 years has been personalized pronouns, as you're saying. And that is much better than the current status quo. I do it all the time. And what I'm talking about with the, the general they and the personalized pronouns, both can work. We don't only have to have one solution. I do think from looking at the situation that using they and say general they is the more effective solution. And there are some drawbacks personalized pronouns, although I do think they are way better than nothing, and I use them all the time. One is, as you mentioned, the problem of remembering, and that is has several you know, components. One is the whole point of a pronoun is that it groups people together. If everyone has a unique pronoun, it's no longer a pronoun, it's a name, right? So the, the point of pronouns is that they aren't individualized, they group people together. And there is as someone who's done you know, some research in the realm of disability, there is a bit of an ableism in the assumption that everyone has the cognitive ability to remember 10 people's personalized pronouns, and if they forget, they've misgendered someone. There's also this interesting relationship between language and thought. If I ask you what are your preferred pronouns, you know, if I ask you what is your preferred first and second person pronouns, what would you say? I mean, I and you. You don't have preferred pronouns. That's an artifact of the language. If we were speaking Indonesian right now, you wouldn't have preferred he or she kinds of third-person pronouns because there's he for everyone. So the, the desire to have an individual pronoun in the English language is an effect of the structure of the language. And when I talk about 
structural radical change, it's that structure that I would argue we should change. And so that actually meeting today is the best way to do it, not only because of the issue around remembering that you mentioned, but also if it's someone you haven't met yet and you don't know what their pronouns are. Not everyone puts it in their email line or uses email, right? Um, so there are some downsides to using personalized pronouns. It also reflects the kind of capitalist logic of self-branding and the kind of shopping mall of identities where everyone has their kind of uh, brand, which, like I mentioned before, isn't what pronouns do. But, but as I say in my broader argument, there are some drawbacks today, and there's some great stuff that personalized pronouns do. So I'm, I'm not making an either-or kind of claim here. There's sort of buses and minuses to both. I think the they route is the better route, but there's some downsides to it. And there's some upsides to personalized pronouns. So it's all good. It's all better than the current situation. And um, language change takes time, you know, and patience, and, and people make mistakes all the time. Um, that's how language changes. So it would be really interesting to see what happens um, in English and other languages, like I said, around the world that have gender um, in their languages that's obligatory in particular, and how can we address that? Thank you very much. It's um, been wonderful talking to you and thank you for um, adding to um, the discussion in this, this area. Uh, we really appreciate that. That was uh, Tom Belstorff, Professor of Anthropology from the University of California, talking to us about why the English language is ready to become gender neutral. And you can read more on this by checking out Tom's recent article in the Sapiens Journal. And uh, they also have a contribution called Pronoun Trouble, Notes on Radical Gender Inclusion in English, which is going to be a chapter in a forthcoming book. And I'll be putting the details of all of that in our show notes. Thank you. Back to Jacob. Amazing. Thank you, Claudia, for bringing us such an insightful perspective. I think it's it's definitely something we don't hear a lot of throughout the public discourse um, on trans and gender diverse folks. What did you think, Ella? Yeah, good stuff. Um, nice to have a yeah, guest from California and hear another perspective. Yeah, and hearing uh, about the other languages is really interesting too, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I think it's always important to question. Um, there's so many things we think of as just the way things are. Um, mm. And then when you actually stop to think about it, it's all... Um, it's constructed, so why can't we deconstruct it or reconstruct mm. it? But as uh, they said, there's no right and wrong. Um, you know, we're, we're all evolving in this space um, and, um, yeah, everyone's doing their best. And as, as Jacob pointed out early, there are a lot of transitioning folk who prefer um, gendered pronouns because they're affirming in terms of, you know, where they're going. So... Um, yeah, many different views. Yeah, definitely. Mm, complex and evolving subject, but a worthwhile one nonetheless. Thanks, Claudia, and thanks to our guest, Tom, from California. We're going to be jumping to a quick song now. This one is called Swell by Imbi. Overwhelmed, the water swells with the moon just as well. I should have known we were doomed. You always live closer to the beach. But you had no emotional reach I choose not to read my mail In case I fail to do my taxes It relaxes me Not to see 
but I saw what I saw now. I relapse once more, find myself on the shore. It's my only true door. My heart aches for sure. Else it did, but no more. This feeling should explode. Haven't felt like this for a while. I'm not anxious, no, not only that, not only sad, not only glad, not angry. Yeah, my dad, not only feeling more than I anticipated, but I'm jaded. Cannot describe what is inside. I was always articulated, but could never quite mold that play dough to describe the vibe that grows and hides so quick, so kind, so cruel, so indescribable. Not angst, not against you. Won't think of you. Think I loved you. Fuck. Think I loved you. This feeling inside. This feeling inside. Emotions will swell. Emotions will tide. This feeling inside. This feeling inside. Emotional swell. Emotions can't hide. One time I thought this was the end. <laughs> this feeling surely overwhelms. Debilitates me, not pretending like I know you no more. For sure, I glorified you. For sure, would not deny you a glimpse inside my head. If I knew how to access it, I thought I knew myself quite well. But still, this emotion no swell like a riddle I can't crack. It's got me muddled. Wanna whack some sense into myself. Value emotional health. Wish I could feel with myself. Guess I'm just rich in a wealth I can't handle. Too many scandals. Wanna wear sandals. Wanna wear boots. Wanna light candles, but wanna scoot to the other end of the couch. Gotta roll it out from my pouch just to feel like I'm not without. Just to feel like I know about myself. Don't feel like I know about myself. Don't feel like I wanna doubt myself. Just wish I knew how this feeling swells. Just wish that this feeling would warm me first because this feeling inside. You're on 3CR, Brecky, joined by Jacob, Ella and Claudia. And turning the dial a bit now, we're going to be speaking with someone about a very special local production. Yeah, that's right. So now we're going to cast our minds to a global crisis which favours the young and the fit. Society's inequality is laid bare. Failures in the production line have led to shortages and families are isolated in their homes. While this all sounds alarmingly similar to our current reality, the next segment is looking at a work of fiction. Uh, production hashtag no exemptions is opening at La Mama Theatre tomorrow. And this play looks at Issues such as privilege and inequality, motherhood, and our responsibilities as citizens to resist unjust systems. I can't wait to see it, and we're joined now by the writer Angela Buckingham. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Angela. Good morning. I can't think of a better way to start the day. 
<laughs> Glad to hear it. Yeah, not everyone's keen to be up and on air before uh, 8 a.m., but we're always happy to have a guest. <laughs> now, um, tell us about your production, Hashtag No Exemptions. Well, we were at the theatre late, late last night putting on the finishing touches, and it's a fabulous collaboration of great actors, fabulous director Susie D. Sound, light, amazing design by Sophie Woodward. And it's coming together, Woodard, and it's coming together to tell a story about a very common anxiety. I know a lot of my friends, a lot of other parents look at the world we're leaving our kids and say, if we don't act now, we've got a very small window where we have a chance to put the brakes on climate change. What are our children going to say to us? And what's our, our responsibility as individual parents when the system is so broken, when the whole politics of climate change seems to be in this quagmire of inaction, when the interests of a few very, very wealthy older people are cancelling out the interests of the majority and our children? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it used to be seen as this really um, radical position to be taking into account the climate when deciding whether to have a child. And now it's actually quite common. I mean, most people are taking it into account, but a lot of people are even choosing not to have children just because um, well, the outlook can be Well, there's a discussion amongst our team and there is someone on our crew who has made the conscious decision not to have children because she doesn't want to bring them into a world facing what our world faces. Yeah. I, I had my kids more than a decade ago, and I think then that, yeah, to take that position seems very radical, whereas now it seems very rational. Um, but, you know, we've got... There's a lot of us here, and we can still make change, and we can still make a difference. Um, and this play makes us think about this very big macro political issue in terms of the most personal, the closest, the most intimate relationships. Yeah. And yeah, hashtag no exemptions is set amongst a global environmental collapse, as you said. Um, yeah. And as you said, there is a lot of anxieties around that at the moment. Um, did you find writing it was sort of an outlet um, to process these anxieties? Absolutely. For me, it was a form of catharsis. Um, I, I found it was bundling it up, taking all those sort of free-flying anxieties and, and putting them into one rocket of, you know, it, it, it's a cry for we can do better, we must do better. It also really acknowledges that I come from a position of privilege. You know, if we look at the world, that we're living in, um, when a million Syrians walked into Germany, um, a lot of people said the war in Syria was triggered by a seven-year drought where massive numbers of farmers were forced off the land. If you're, you know, a refugee trying to flee, you know, increasing desertification, that's a long word, in northern Africa and you're stuck in Liberia or on the coast of the Mediterranean trying to get into Europe, like, what's happening to people is horrific. If, you know, and 
you don't even have to go so far afield. If you lost your home in Lismore, if your house burnt down in those fires, the human costs of climate change are present. They're here. And privilege isn't going to protect us. Yeah. You know, we think that we're in, we can turn the air conditioning up, that, you know, we'll be okay. But if we destroy our environment, we destroy the fabric of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. So, and um, you yeah. were living in Berlin during the time of the Syrian crisis, right? So you were witnessing this um, yeah, yeah. This movement well, the, the of people. Local, the local gym became... One day I was walking my kids home from kindy and armoured military trucks rolled, came rolling down the street. And I was like, you know, trucks, armoured trucks in Berlin is a contradiction. Like, my brain couldn't sort of not compute watching these trucks come down the street. I was like, oh, my God, what is going on? Yeah, yeah um, I was actually living in Berlin at the same time, and I remember that. It was um, really intense, and they seemed to fit about 30 people in a truck. It was, yeah. Yeah, and then they, they, they well, you would have seen this, but these, you know, young soldiers jumped out of these trucks. They ran into our local gym, and in the course of a couple of hours, they set up a refugee camp. And so, you know, a block from my house, there were 300 people living in a gym in these, they had these bunk beds and they'd rig up sheets around them and you'd have a family living in one bunk bed. Um, and yeah, it was this mass movement of people and we're going to see more of that if, you know, with what's happening with our climate. Yeah. And it has all sorts of unintended impacts. You know, in Germany, the far right party was really like failing and then with this mass immigration of people it was uh you know a lifeblood to the far right not because of the people who came but because of conservative fearful reactions but you know you wouldn't you wouldn't expect that a war in syria would cause the rise in the far right in germany you know like climate change will have these bizarre and unintended knock-on effects the ripples of which you know we can't predict so we have to deal with it. We've got an election coming up. You know, our, our electoral politics hasn't seemed up to the challenge recently, but, um, you know, I still have hope. <laughs> mm, it's certainly a, a grim picture uh, we've painted there, and I thought I think it's also a picture of hope, um, and there's a lot of stories of resilience and people rebuilding. Um, you just told that story about setting up a refugee shelter in a gym, like, that to me speaks um, volume about you know the nature of, of human resilience. So I'm curious to know how do you tell stories about hope against a backdrop um, of such uh, I guess catastrophe that's unfolding around the world. I, th- I think you, you've just picked on something there that often when we talk about hope, we hope that our governments will get it right. We hope that the system will work. We hope that we'll have leaders like Greta Thunberg or, you know, uh, environmental Martin Luther King who'll make us see the light. Or we hope that there's going to be some magical scientific discovery that will solve this problem. Or we hope that it's not the biggest problem as people think it is. You know, I think all those sorts of hope are like a, a false consciousness. And what my play really argues is that there is individual responsibility and that the hope lies with us, that we can do amazing things. You know, when 
there are mass movements of refugees, we can build welcoming centres for them. We can make space for people. We can rebuild our homes after floods. But we have to look at our own capacity for extraordinary and be the hope we want to see. Yeah, absolutely. And we can't outsource. Yeah, <laughs> someone's got to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, this story follows one individual character, Maria. Um, can you tell us yeah. a little more about her and how she's uh, striving to make a difference? Um, I think she strove to make a difference. This is, you know, what happens after if we don't do enough, if we don't act fast enough. Um, but she is a survivor. Like, she wants to live. Even as everything's collapsing, she she wants to hold on and she wants to live to see her son. Yeah. Um, and it's her story. The play at the moment is just over an hour. It's running at 70 minutes. You know, by the time you get in and get out, it might be an hour and a half. But, it's you know, it's a very compact period of time and it's a very intense... It, it, it's the principal crisis in this woman's life. It's about her confrontation with her son. Um, yeah, and, and she is very much um, at, at the end of her days when she sums up her life, her responsibility as a mother is at the forefront. And um, we spoke earlier about all the kind of similarities with the current world. Um, I was surprised to see you wrote the play prior to the pandemic. Um, oh, the pandemic. The pandemic gave me heebie-jeebies. It was like, you know, when things of like when um, the tower blocks were quarantined and the language that was used, you know, people trying to cross state borders and, you know, this whole term of exemptions and who could come, who could... Like, the language of the pandemic and the vehicles of state control when we're facing a crisis... Um, a lot of it I'd imagined before, um, and it sort of came to be through COVID. Um, but yes, for very different causes and with very different outcomes. Yeah, it must have been strange as someone who'd spent so much time in the mindset of um, how people respond to a crisis to suddenly see it unfold. Um, yes. Was there anything that surprised you in the way people responded? lot of focus on things like people, you know, fighting over toilet paper and stuff. But I actually thought, as a community, we pulled together extraordinarily well. We've spoken before about Germany um, and that I was in Germany, you were in Germany. And you look at the death rates in Germany and you look at the um, comparative rates in Australia and every death is a, is a tragedy and a family, you know, grieving and lo- for losing someone. But Melbourne's lockdown saved so many lives and people did it and did it for an extraordinarily long period of time at great personal, um, for many people, at great personal cost and with a lot of difficulty emotionally, financially, structurally. You know, and I, I was surprised that people had the capacity to pull together in such a way for such a long period of time while we were all, paradoxically, so isolated. So I, I actually found it a hopeful event, and there are, 
you know, 35,000 of us who are still with us today because we did it. That to me is inspiring. We saved a lot of lives. We don't stop and talk about that enough. You know, there was a lot of tragedy that didn't unfold because we all fought the pandemic together. Um, And I think it's something we need to remember as we go forward that, you know, we did we did stop a lot of people dying. It's a very positive thing the way our community responded. Yeah, definitely. And I think um especially in the early days having um less contact with each other kind of made us savor or value it even more, um, and spend more Absolutely. time thinking about it. Um so did... this play's been put off a few times and to be back in the theatre and working with a team collaborating again. I uh, I appreciate it in a way I don't think I had before. Yeah, yeah, those um, things we all miss so much. And um, did the story change shape at all or evolve during these experiences? Yes, also because although we were all locked down, I was working very closely with the Shift Theatre, um, who produced the play, and with Susie D, with the actors who are involved. We did a number of... Um, script workshops, we did a lot over Zoom, and there was having the time to really delve into the script, to discuss the script, um, reshape the script. Uh, I I think the benefit is on stage now, that that thought process, that, um, yeah, those, those shared discussions, imaginings, that collaboration, the rewards are really on, on stage today. Yeah. Must be so exciting to finally see it come to life. I um, can't wait to have an audience. Um, if any of your listeners come, you know, I'll be at the theatre, come and say hello because it's fabulous to be part of the community and we put on theatre for the people who watch it. So, you know, yes, come say hello, tell me what you think. I love to have discussions around this issue. And the great thing about theatre is we can all get together. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, I can't wait to see it myself. Um, now we are running out of time, um, but just quickly, how can um, how can listeners get along and see this play? So it's at La Mama, um, at the La Mama Theatre, the courthouse. Just go to the La Mama website and you can book tickets there. Um, tomorrow night is booked out, Thursday night, but otherwise it's on Wednesday till Sunday, this week and next week. And it's also... Um, is it live streaming? Did I read that? Yeah, it's live streaming on Friday the 6th of May. So if you are immune compromised or, um, you know, for some reason aren't ready to sit in a the theatre, um, you can live stream it. And, uh, you know, there's a chat that goes with it. It's actually quite a communal event if you're part of the live stream. So you do get that sense of community as well. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Angela. Thank you, and thank you for caring about the issues, and thank you for supporting our local theatre. Our pleasure. (laughs) And that was Angela Buckingham, playwright, and uh, telling us about her latest production, Hashtags No Exemptions, starting at La Mama Theatre tomorrow night. Fantastic. It sounds like a a really insightful event, and I think it, it touches on a lot of very relevant issues today. Yeah, yep, she's very prescient by the sounds. <laughs> mm. Well, looking forward to seeing that one. Uh, we'll be right back after this community service announcement.
Join us on May 1st, the International Day of the Working Classes. We're mobilising for workers' rights, decent living conditions, environmental protection, the rights of Indigenous peoples and in opposition to imperialist war and aggression. There'll be speakers, stalls, food and community singing from midday on Sunday, May 1st at Trades Hall on the corner of Ligon and Victoria Street, Carlton. Then, march around the city, assembling from 1.30pm. And leading up to the day, don't forget April 28th from 5pm, the annual eight-hour memorial event opposite Trades Hall. Followed by a 6pm solidarity event, good food, entertainment and speakers. Help us hold the worst federal government in living memory to account. For more information, visit maydayvictoria.com. The Melbourne May Day Committee is a 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR, Brecky. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's about nine past eight. You're here with Ella, Claudia and myself, Jacob. And we just heard an interview um, about a play happening at La Mama Theatre. Super exciting stuff. And on that topic of unfolding catastrophe, I'm going to hand over to Claudia to introduce our next guest. Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, it was uh, interesting hearing... um Ella's guests talk about uh, environmental collapse because um, that is pretty much what we're facing and uh, we're not hearing a lot from our main political parties in the lead up to the uh, federal election. So um, as uh, the playwright said, uh, she said her play was a cry for we must do better. So uh, we're going to be talking to someone who also believes we can do better, um, and the way through is through more public renewable energy. So our next guest is Jason Wong from the W4CA, Workers for Climate Action Group, and they're organising an event tonight in Melbourne um, to demand more from our politicians when it comes to investing in renewable energy. Jason is the organiser of the event and he's here to talk to us now. Welcome, Jason. Hi, Claudia. Lovely to have you. Good morning. Good. Before we get into the public renewable energy discussion, can you bring us up to speed on the climate positions of the major parties coming into the election? I know it's been um, a bit on the back burner. Oh, that's a poor expression, isn't it? A bit on the back burner um, in terms of uh, uh, the election sort of headlines. Um, it just seems to be um, flaring up a bit more with the divisions within the coalition. Um, but, uh, yeah, it would be great just to get a, a summary of, of your take on where what the different parties are at. Yeah. So the two major parties... Um have been characterized as election by their relative lack of any real statement on what they're going to do about climate change. So we saw um, the Liberals' effective policy um, last year at the COP26 um, global summit on, on climate change, where Scott Morrison essentially delivered a plan that said, we're going to wait for technology and the free market to save us. 
and in and in and in, in practice, what that what that's meant is that he's gone and poured his uh, he's gone and decided to pour money, public money, into um, his gas fired recovery. So the flagship project of this gas fired recovery is Curry Curry uh, gas plant that's uh, currently being fought over in um, in uh, in New South Wales. Six hundred million dollars of public public money, which he has threatened industry with, um, build the gas plant, or we will do it ourselves. And industry did not want to do it, so there we go. That that's our public money um, go, going in. And the Labour Party, quite disappointingly, um, not exactly in lockstep, but essentially offering zero resistance. Um, so, as we understand it, the Labour Party is. Um, uh, gone, gone along with most of mo- most of this. They've offered no resistance on approval of new coal mines. And on the question of curry curry, they said um, we'll support it. We'll uh, allow it to run for gas at, at, at first, and we'll uh, figure out a way to get it to run on hydrogen subsequently, which is not much of a policy. Yeah, it's really disappointing, isn't it? Um, just when we need really strong um, opposition to the apathy that we've seen from the current government. Um, yeah, we'd uh, all like to be seeing a lot lot more um, push there from, from Labor. And um, Lydia Thorpe is one of your speakers um, from the Greens. Uh, can you tell us what their their policy is um, and also what she will be bringing from a First Nations perspective. Mm. Um, we understand two, the two interesting planks of the Greens uh, climate policy that we'd like to highlight tonight at the, at, at the forum. The first is uh, uh, that you might have heard last month that Adam Vance had announced um, something on the order of $17 billion in fund for specifically to transition fossil fuel workers out of the out of the industry, so directly acknowledging that um, that the transition is going to have an impact on these jobs, and that it shouldn't be up to these workers or their communities to um, fund uh, whatever has happened next, whether it be training um, or reinvestment, that sort of uh, that sort of thing. And we also understand that there are uh, guarantees of the Greens policy, something on the order of 40 billion um, for the actual um, projects themselves, uh, built um, through an existing organ that the government um, uh, has to, uh, like similar to, similar to Snowy Hydro that delivers um, clean clean energy projects. So they're going for something, uh, as we as we understand it, we're, and we're hoping to hear from another one of our uh, speakers tonight, Penny, who researches this sort of thing on exactly how this is going to work. Um, but it's going to be something on uh, similar to a Telstra model, where the government operates its own um, company in the in, in, in the marketplace and tries to push down. Uh, prices and increase the renewable energy supply that way. So as we understand it, that's the Greens policy, and we're hoping to hear from Lydia on that tonight. So can you give us a little bit more detail on what public renewable energy is? And, you know, we we hear lots of talk about hydrogen and, and things like that, but um, why do you see it so important in the, the clean energy transition, and, and why are the, the parties just... The, the the bigger parties just backing away from uh, from this. Mm. Um, we're talking about public renewables because it isn't something that's being uh, discussed even in the even in the wider climate movement at, at any serious scale. Even though we think that and, and we suspect that most of the climate movement actually agrees with this um, that 
the scale and speed of the transition to renewables that is going to be required to stave off the climate emergency is pretty much only possible if we do it um, with some measure of uh, central coordination and mass um, uh, investment that would imply public ownership of the of, of renewables that we're building. So that's basically what we're after. What we're what we're after is that we think that uh, the renewable the renewables energy the renewable energy that we're building uh, in the coming decades needs to be built with public money. It needs to stay in public hands afterwards. And that's a way that we can uh, achieve um, all, all of the goals that, that, that a just transition would seek to achieve. Uh, chiefly, that the, trans, that the transition does take place, that it takes place, that the transition to renewables, that it does take place quickly, that it takes place in a planned way that doesn't involve the chaos of multiple companies jostling over infrastructure that they don't technically control. Um, that it takes place fairly, that, you, that um, you know, communities that can't necessarily afford um, to pay for the bigger projects don't get left behind. Um, but also to ensure that um, that uh, justice is served for uh, the workers in these communities who may have been working at the, in the fossil fuel industry at some point, that the public money can be used to retrain them, um, that justice is, ser- is served for the indigenous communities in, in, in that, that may be affected to ensure that they won't be trampled over by some company coming in taking their land and, um, and building a power plant on top of it, whether it be a gas plant or a solar plant. Um, and also to service the case of uh, affordable energy, because cost of living is, of course, a huge issue right now with the, with the way the global economy is going. I was interested to read yesterday that uh, Vote Compass on ABC had reported its results from, uh, from the surveys that people have been taking, and the number one and number three uh, issues, I, I believe, for the, for the electorate were climate change and cost of living respect. more people um well the politicians addressing this more i I read it this morning in the conversation that they've uh, just had a um reader survey where they um asked 10,000 readers what was most important to them in the lead up to the federal election and they've just announced the um the outcome of that survey uh this morning and the the um most important issue um, for readers of this uh, publication is climate change and they responded by just saying that they want more um, discussion on this. This is important to them when they, they're voting. Um, you know, how, how can this come to the fore more? It's, there are a lot of important issues but, you know, this one is really um, absolutely essential in terms of preserving who we are and the planet? Mm. Um, we set up uh, Workers' Climate Action, or more accurately, our sister group in Sydney set up Workers' Climate Action, and we followed their lead um, specifically to answer this question. It's all in the name, isn't it? Um, for us, the key to forcing this issue through into, into, the, into the consciousness of our mainstream politicians lies in the power of um, organized labor. So... Like it, the, the the calls have heard hard, far and wide. You'll you'll see on pretty much every responsible media platform right now that climate change is the issue going into this going into this election. But the two major parties are, don't want to touch it with a barge pole um, because they either don't believe it's a serious problem or because they have absolutely no idea how they're going to um, to to tackle it in any serious way. And we look to the leadership uh, and the example for it, uh, for instance of what the school uh, students have been doing with their school strikes. Um, 
we're aware that there's um, yet another one being called May 6th in, in, in Sydney, for example. And the, the, the significance of these strikes is that it's no longer a case of us uh, lamenting that uh, climate change isn't being discussed by our politicians, that we can actually attempt to do something about it, to force, to force it to become an election issue by, by putting a lot of public pressure um, on, these, on these politicians and stating clearly um, what we think um, they should be doing. The demand for the school strikes has been su- super clear all along. 100% public renewable uh, by 2030, no new fossil fuels, and a jobs guarantee uh, for, uh, for, for, for workers. Um, it's, it's really important that the climate movement as a whole and the union movement as a whole um, is, united on this, is united on this question because the key plank um, of, um, I suppose, like modern, quote-unquote, climate denialist policy is to attempt to convince public that these two questions cannot be solved together, that they are mutually exclusive, mm-hmm. that we can either have environmental protection or protections for workers. And what we say is not only is that untrue, um, that the only actual solution to both of these uh, problems um, is to solve them together, right? To, 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 to guarantee the jobs of the future in, 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 a, in a situation where the entire world is retreating slowly and chaotically from, um, from, from fossil fuels, we need to do what we did in the 60s when we built the grid the first time and guarantee these jobs and do it with public, public money and do it in a way that guarantees cost of living, affordable electricity and so on. So effectively call the, the politicians out on, on the uh, worker right. argument. And in the, and in the meantime, uh, we need to build our, uh, we, we need to build our working class organizations to be able to apply that pressure in, in, in up to and including using, using strike actions necessary. So that's why we work with, with all, with all these, with all these unions. It shouldn't be up to these politicians to, to, to discuss uh, climate change at leisure. We should be able to force this mm. through, through protest, through, through, through strike action. And if unions and community groups and indigenous groups can unite on this question, as they are beginning to do around Curry Curry under the leadership of the Gomorrah people who are resisting that uh, that plant and the Narrabri and the Narrabri project, then many things are many things are possible. We can force the government to to fund a transition that is on the workers' terms, not the mm. collective energy. Um, I'm just going to bring uh, Jacob in here. He's got a question for you. Uh, hi, Jason. Really enjoyed uh, the point that you touched on earlier about cost of living um, and kind of renewable energy being, I guess, showcased as uh, mutually exclusive things by politicians. And I think we saw last week uh, the coalition was running a, another scare campaign um, about how Labor's going to drive up the, the cost of energy. What role do you think the media has to play in, in sort of debunking a lot of the messaging that's coming out between the two major parties um, about cost of living and renewables? Mm, um, yeah, the, the, the media's got to do fact-checking, I suppose. That, 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 that's basic to it, because on the one hand, the question of cost of living um, as pertains to electricity is, um, is, re- is relatively well, well understood. Um, it's Orthodox knowledge within like economic circles, certainly within climate economic circles in this country, that um, the, the price of electricity in the southeast is more expensive because the degree of privatization privatization down here um, is worse than anywhere else in the country. Um, any any the only way you can buy electricity in this state in, in, in Victoria is by going through essentially two layers of middlemen. Uh, one who one that you, you buy you buy there there are companies that uh, create the power, then they send it through a transmission line. And then it has to be retailed into your house. And for some inexplicable reason, there could be three, four companies involved in that chain 
um, and everyone is skimming, skimming, skimming a profit off profit off at the top. Um, so the solution to uh, this this aspect of the question on cost of living, um, one of the solutions at least, being to simply reduce or eliminate the middlemen and simply take it under uh, government government management, as we do with other essential essential services, seems to be pretty obvious. But if the major parties want to talk about or want to avoid talking about cost of living. Uh, then it's up to the media to sort of raise this as um, one of the one of the solutions. Okay. Well, we don't have too much more time, um, but the most important thing to give our listeners now is the event details for tonight and how uh, people can come along and um, and hear uh, your speakers and uh, the arguments that um, they'll be putting forward. That's right. So uh, the event will be tonight. So we're, we're talking about fighting Martin's uh, dirty energy addiction and making the case for public renewable energy. That'll be at 6.30 tonight at the Kathleen Stein Library in Carlton, just across from the university. And we have four excellent speakers. We have Josephine Foster from uh, Tomorrow Movement to talk about climate jobs guarantee. Uh, we have Lydia Thorpe, of course, uh, to speak on uh, the Greens plan and on, on, the, on, on the indigenous angle, on indigenous resistance to uh, the gas right recovery right on the front line. Uh, sorry, in the front line. Uh, we have Tony Wolf, who is actually a coal uh, a power plant operator at the Loyang Coal Station, who is busy supporting the wind projects that are going to replace it, and will be making the case for jobs for for, for the workers down there, um, and and what and what the importance of that transition means to, to the to the community down there. And finally, we'll have Penny Penny Howard, who is a research officer for the uh, Maritime Union of Australia, whose job is to figure out exactly how to wire said offshore uh, wind wind farm to the rest of the grid and to figure out the nitty-gritty of how many jobs will be created and how much it will cost um, and, uh, and politically how we can force that project through in the event that the government fails to either support it or to fund, or to fund it. And uh, for people that can't get along to the event in person, um, how can yeah. they participate and hear more about um, your uh, actions? Uh, Workers of Climate Action Melbourne is on Facebook. So look for W4CA Melb on Facebook. And also check out the work of our sister group in Sydney who is having a little more success with, with things at the moment. Workers for Climate Action, ju- just like that. There's, there's no Sydney at the back. Um, we will try to record the, uh, the meeting tonight, but uh, no guarantees on account on, a, on account of uh, staffing. And uh, you also have... Uh Act on Climate and Friends of the Earth um, participating in the event tonight as well. That's correct. That's correct. Um, Act on Climate is a sub-project of Friends of the Earth, and Friends of the Earth is, of course, well-known to your audience. FOE uh, Melbourne.org, I believe, is their website, and they can also be found on all the usual um, socials. Okay, well, uh, everyone get along to this event if you can, 6.30pm tonight at the Kathleen Syme Library, Carlton, opposite... Um, Melbourne University, uh, Wednesday the 17th of April. You're listening to 3CR. Thanks for joining us, Jason. No worries, no worries. Thank you. Thank you. You're on 3CR. Wow, what an inspiring interview. Mm, Yeah, it's really good to have um, that front and centre, isn't it? And um, we just need more, more... Discussion, but I really like the the approach of workers up, and you know, both from a perspective of 
really sort of cutting into that um, the argument that the the government's running that you know we'll lose jobs and so forth if we you know move away from coal and so forth, but also just in terms of taking the um, you know this issue back back to the people that will be affected by it as well, um, which is all of us. Yeah, and yeah, I think like you said, bringing it to the forefront. Um, as you spoke about the conversation poll mm. there, and I'd say um, the reader base for the conversation is probably more left-leaning. Um, don't quote me on that, but I'm guessing. Mm. <laughs> um, but even when they do um, uh, more widespread surveys, climate change, everyone wants more action on it. It's important to them, but I think it's just about making it the number one priority for people mm. when they go to the polling booths or when they... Um, have their say. Um, yeah, and Labor's um, clearly uh, a bit nervous uh, given the um, the impact of their policy in Queensland yeah. last time and playing it, well, Getting I think they're playing it to be safe, in the background but, um, and um, nothing yeah, more yeah, we want to, we want some strong voice there, don't we? Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I think there's uh, certain conservative pockets of the media that seem to inflate this idea that, um, as Jason was talking about before, the cost of living going down and installing renewables um, aren't well compatible, essentially. No. Mm. Yeah. So Especially I, not in the long run. I mean, not even in the short term, um, but particularly mm. not in the long run. Um, and I do see we're ticking on for time. I just wanted to give a quick mention to our special broadcasting event this Sunday for May Day. Mm-hmm. Um, so each year on the 1st of May, communities from around the world join in celebrating the achievements of the labour movement and uh, show solidarity with the continued struggle for labour rights everywhere. Uh, so here at 3CR, we'll be celebrating with a special broadcast starting at 1 p.m., and, yeah, we're going to have live coverage and analysis of the local and international labour issues. So stay tuned. Fantastic. Yeah. And you can also join the rally um, at Trades Hall on Sunday. Yeah, that's right. And we will be broadcasting live from the rally. Awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. Thanks for listening, everyone. And up next, stick together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.